Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. This week, I'm joined by Rod Adams, who's a former U.S. nuclear submarine engineer officer and founder of Adams Atomic Engines, Inc., an SMR development company that operated from 1993 to 2010. Rod also runs the Atomic Insights blog, which has been a go-to source on all things nuclear energy since the dawn of the internet, and he hosts the Atomic Show podcast that's associated with Atomic Insights. Rod, it's, a, it's an honor to have you on Decouple. Welcome aboard. Thanks, Chris. Good to be here. Now, Rod, um, I love submarine movies. I'm super curious about your past. You know, I, I tend to try and introduce people's qualifications and backgrounds up front, but I love to get a bit of a personal story. Um, I hear that um, submar- uh, nuclear submarine operators actually get a lower radiation dose than folks on the surface, despite being in a metal tube kind of 10 meters from a shielded nuclear reactor. Is that is that true? What's your what's your <laughs> life dosimetry been like? Well, no, that that is true. We we, our doses while we're underway and submerged uh, are lower than they would be if we were on the surface uh, simply because we don't have any cosmic radiation and we don't have any radon or anything from the background uh, of the uh, radioactive materials on the earth. But of course, you know, I was only submerged for about two years out of 61. So it really hasn't made any big difference in my um uh, lifetime dosage. And I guess that's kind of the topic of our podcast today. We're, we're going to be talking about the uh, origins of the linear no threshold hypothesis and um, looking at um, something that you've kind of delved into a fair amount, which is the role that the Rockefeller Foundation played in terms of the funding and support of the work of Herman Mueller, who, of course, was one of the intellectual architects of the uh, linear no threshold hypothesis. So that's that's it's a it's an interesting topic because you know you're saying it, it doesn't make any difference. Um, the dose was so low, and I guess that's the exact thing we're here to talk about today. Yeah, well, and Herman Muller is an interesting uh, character uh, in the story. Uh, he started his work as a uh, geneticist studying fruit flies in the infamous or famous fly room at Columbia University, uh, where they. Uh, did a lot of real technical work in learning how genetics works uh, by massive studies of multiple generations of fruit flies, which is a a tiny little creature that has the uh, useful uh, characteristic for a geneticist of having a lifespan of about 21 days. Yeah. Yeah. Go through many generations of these fruit flies in a relatively short period of time, studying genetics, genetics for very long-lived organization organisms, like even mice, which you know live for six or eight months, is a much more expensive and challenging task. Absolutely, yeah. Right uh, before we get into Herman Mueller, I, I wanted to get a little bit into the time period and sort of take our listeners back. Um, into this era, because, you know, not only are we talking about Herman Mueller, but we're talking about the Rockefeller Foundation, and we're talking about 
Um, just this idea that, you know, when there is the potential for a disruptive industry to come about, the legacy industries that are there are, are threatened by it potentially and may take actions um, to try and avoid being supplanted. And, you know, I think most people, um, when they think about nuclear energy, um, they're thinking stuff that's happening right around World War II. Um, in one of your articles, um, you talk about a presentation that a gentleman named Sir Arthur Eddington um, gave at the World Energy Council, um, which may have sort of perked the attention of, of some of the fossil fuel magnates at the time. Could you kind of share that anecdote with us? Sure. Well, one of the things to understand about the global uh, fuels industry is that it's huge and is full of people who have very long-range perspectives on, on their life's work. And in the early 1900s, there were physicists doing a lot of work studying uh, the nucleus of, a, of atoms, and part of their motivation was driven by the realization from astrophysicists like Arthur Eddington that there must be some incredibly dense store of energy uh, somewhere because if stars were casting off their light into the heavens by burning something, by combusting and using chemical energy, they would have burned out long ago. Mm -hmm. You know, they, by, by the early 1900s, uh, astrophysicists had realized that stars were, um, you know, burning brightly in the heavens and had been for billions of years. And, you know, it wasn't too difficult a calculation to realize that there had to be something powering those stars and that maybe that something was inside the nucleus of atomic energy. And of course, in you know the early 1900s, Einstein released his famous relativity studies and, and his equation that E equals mc squared. And so by about 1930, Arthur Eddington had put together a, a, a presentation and he gave it to the World Energy Council and told the assembled people at this World Energy Council, which is about 3,000 representatives of the global fuels industry, the global hydrocarbon coal and industry, that someday their uh, fuel sources would be considered delicacies in a world that was powered by what he called at that time subatomic energy. Mm -hmm. And my belief is that having a astrophysicist, a world-renowned, giving a talk to the World Energy Council, people that make their living selling fuel and saying someday your fuels will be obsolete and no one will buy them anymore was probably a warning that they took to heart and they probably began studying and of course they did all kinds of important work funding scientists and and understanding what the what was going on in the world and were very well positioned to understand that this subatomic energy was real mm -hmm. And that, of course, came to uh, fruition, I guess, a kind of morbid fruition with the uh, the Manhattan Project, the Trinity Test, the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And, you know, around the time that the, the hydrogen bomb came about, um, there was the launching of Atoms for Peace, um, which was this real attempt to... Um, you know, harness the the atom for peaceful purposes. I mean, the cynics might say it was just a way to um, 
to try and, you know, public relations effort on, on behalf of the United States, kind of in their jostling for public opinion against the Soviet Union. But in any case, Adams for Peace was a was a major, major effort diplomatically and also as a public relations campaign. Um, and there were many, many, you know, pieces of uh, literature, movies, animations that were created extolling all of the potential uses, the peaceful uses of, of atomic energy. Um, and, and that was, what was that, mid-1950s that that, that came out? Well, uh, his speech was December 1953. So, yeah. Yeah. And and that potentially would have, you know, you had um, uh, Arthur Eddington's speech in the the 1930s. And and I'm imagining that the Adams for Peace um, public relations efforts would have, again, sort of fluffled the feathers of of the fossil fuel industry um, with its imaginations of um, atomic energy and electricity, et cetera. Well, the fossil fuel industry certain hadn't, certainly hadn't been sleeping in the period from 1930 to 1953, 54. Um, Herman Muller uh, developed his uh, single hit proportionality rule about uh, atomic uh, radiation effects on genetics sometime around 1927, 1930. Okay. Uh, his experiments were actually, he published a brief paper in 1927 and, and promised to give more data, but didn't really follow up on that. And uh, in the late 1920s and early 1930s, Mueller had some real political problems and real job issues, was uh, going through a divorce. Had he, after he left Columbia University, he uh, landed a professorship at the University of Texas in, in Austin and, and thought of almost being exiled in Texas. Was that because he was a, like a member of the Communist Party or something? Was that... He was. Okay. Well, he, he actually, he claims he never joined the Communist Party, but he was the faculty advisor for a newspaper with serious uh, fellow traveler leanings and it was okay. an underground student newspaper and and he had he published articles and anyway he was not very popular in Texas as you might imagine. Sure. And uh, he he got a fellowship to go study in Europe, um, a Guggenheim fellowship, of course, which is tightly related to the Rockefeller Foundation, and uh, that was 1932 was when he got the fellowship, uh, helped him escape from Texas, and. Uh, he began really promoting hard this notion that, you know, radiation was causing damage even at the very lowest levels. And, and uh, from what I understand, uh, like Herman Mueller was a, was a eugenicist and, you know, the idea of using radiation for mutagenesis to try and change the DNA and even the heredity um, of organisms was potentially to speed up this process of kind of improving uh, the genetic stock of a of an organism, right? Be that humans or certainly, I'm not sure when um, agricultural mutagenesis became a, a big breeding technique, but that's obviously led to, you know, prior to uh, more precise genetic engineering methodology, that certainly led to some big gains in terms of um, the yields of, of hybrid crops and, and certain agricultural products. Was that the underlying motivation? Like, why was he doing his initial research? Why was he bombarding these Drosophila? What was, what was he hoping to find? Well, he did spend a good 15 or 20 years before 1927 looking around for something that would could cause mutations. He and the, his genetic uh, 
colleagues who were really racing to try to find things that would cause uh, genetic modifications. They would they used heat, they used um, other uh, chemical influences, and and it was along those lines that he started using X-rays and and found that yes, in fact, there was some uh, um, mutation effects and. I can't remember the name of the, there was another geneticist who was studying plants uh, that was very close in, in uh, time, uh, finding that there was genetic effects from radiation on plants. And part of the explanation of Muller's rapid publication of his paper was he was searching for priority, making sure that he was first to announce uh, this genetic effect of, of uh, radiation mm -hmm. and uh, that, thus he published a brief paper that wasn't really very thoroughly vetted and wasn't didn't have a lot of data but he got it out there and eventually that paper became uh the the uh, source of a nobel prize which Muller was awarded in 1946 uh you know one year after the atomic bombings the nobel committee searched searched and found that Herman Muller had published work on the radiation effects on genetics and awarded him a Nobel Prize in medicine and physiology mm -hmm. uh, in 1946. And from 46 to 54, uh, Muller attended a lot of conferences, traveled a lot. He was uh, at that time employed at the uh, University of Indiana um, and as a Nobel Prize winning scientist was quite a feather in the cap of that university and, uh, you know, gave, yet gave him a lot of ability to travel and attend conferences. Part of the reason he was able to travel and attend conferences, though, was that his seat at the University of Indiana was bought and paid for by the Rockefeller Foundation. They gave so, him right a <laughs> large grant. Yeah, let's let's go a little bit more into the Rockefeller Foundation. I mean, I'd certainly I think uh, most people have heard of it as an organization. Um, but, you know, when I did a little bit of research, I, I realized how little I knew. Um, so this was this was founded by John D. Rockefeller, I think 1913. Um, and, uh, you know, John D. Rockefeller wasn't a super popular guy <laughs> in his day. No, <laughs> no. Uh, no I mean, he was, uh, you know, kind of the arch. Uh, monopolist, the kind of uh, rapacious capitalist, what was he called? The billion dollar tyrant by Senator Lafollette, greatest criminal of our age. Um, and in some ways, the the Rockefeller, like he'd been doing some charitable donations, um, but I guess there was uh, some pretty bloody labor disputes, um, the massacre of some striking mine workers that really hit his public relations image. And and, and part of the, f the foundation in and of itself was a, as a way to sort of publicize the some of the charitable work he'd been doing in the past and I guess kind of rebuild the brand. It, can you give us some more background on on the Rockefeller Foundation as such, what it what it got involved with outside of just this uh, work on radiation? Well, it's, it is a, a very deep, interesting story. First of all, the Rockefeller Foundation has done some amazing work uh, over time. Like you said, founded in uh, 1913 by who was a man who was at that time the world's richest man by far, uh, was the leader of uh, St Standard Oil Company. Of course, as you noted, Standard Oil Company had some public relations issues. One of the 
the the founders of the term public relations and the whole field, uh, a guy named Ivy Lee, works hard to to help reconstruct John D. Rockefeller's image and turn him into a kindly old gent who famously handed out dimes to almost every young child he met. Um, you know, tipped his hat a lot, uh, smiled a lot, and supported some very important scientific efforts for improving crop yields, for agricultural research, for improving the lives of disadvantaged people, famously uh, helped support education for uh, freed slaves, Negroes, and and helped in the, in the South and eradicating some illnesses, you know, very important work. During World War II, the Rockefeller Foundation was a major source of funds for relocating scientists from Europe uh, mm. to the U.S., you know, p- particularly uh, those who were escaping religious persecution. But fundamentally, the Rockefeller Foundation was an organization that that was interested financially speaking, in protecting the global hydrocarbon industry. Even in 1954, when it found, when it approached the National Academy of Sciences to to do this study on radiation uh, and help Mueller uh, push his ideas, the Rockefeller Foundation had 70% of its annual income came from dividends and interests on stocks and bonds related to Standard Oil Company, hmm. fully seventy percent of its income, and I don't know something like ninety percent of its endowment uh, was now, in those stocks and bonds. So that we're talking about the uh, this this beer report, right? The biological effects of atomic radiation um, at that you know, which just t- help me understand here: is it unusual that a foundation would uh, approach the National Academies of Science and say, "Hey, you know, you should do this report. We should fund it." Like, how how did that actually happen? How involved were they in that report? Well, they were totally involved. I'm not sure how unusual it was to fund a report specifically aiming at finding out. Um, damaging information about a competitive uh, power, competitive product. But the the National Academy of Sciences president, a guy named Dietlif Bronk, was a member of the Rockefeller Foundation Board of Advisors. So was the uh, owner of the New York Times. And uh, a number of other very prominent people were members of the Rockefeller Board of Trustees. And as you noted, at the right around the same time that that Eisenhower made his Adams for Peace speech, the U.S. was testing the hydrogen bomb, the super bomb, the thermonuclear device that uh, the project had started under the Truman administration, but was just uh, reaching testing uh, early in the Eisenhower administration. And there was a, a large test conducted. I want to say in the spring of 1954 that released uh, enough radiation over a large enough area of the ocean, even though it had been evacuated, um, it the radiation fallout rained on a Japanese fishing vessel. The Lucky Dragon, uh, right? The Lucky Dragon, that's right. Yeah. And uh, I think there were 22 fishermen on the vessel uh, all of them got sick. One of them actually died from the uh, exposure. He died several months later in Japan. 
but you know they they'd gotten sick from this fallout which was you know a, a mixture of rain and coral and atomic material that had fallen out of the sky and it would it, it was dozens of miles away from the blast and i mean that, yeah, that particular I, blast i think destroyed the entire I was reading about that recently and, and it was interesting because, um, you know, the H-bomb really seems to have, have, have flipped the script a little bit. I mean, the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki were horrific and, you know, the awe-inspiring power of this weapon was, was uh, you know, stirred the imagination. But the impacts compared to, say, the firebombing of Tokyo or the firebombing of Dresden in terms of casualties, deaths, destruction were not much different. It's just that one bomb did it rather than, you know. I'm not sure tens of thousands of incendiary bombs and one plane versus a, you know, a thousand planes flying overhead. But um, the hydrogen bomb really seemed to have uh, scared a lot of people because here you had a bomb that was a thousand times stronger than the Hiroshima or Nagasaki bombings. Um, and, you know, I'm not sure the degree to which the, the radiate, like, I think those of us who have looked at this closely, the, you know, the, the, the death and damage from, from an atomic or a, or a, or a hydrogen bomb, it's, it's, it's the conventional sort of explosive elements of it. It's the fire. It's the concussive shock waves. Um, the radiation actually plays a, a very small role, but but the the radiation I think instills the most fear in people because of you know the the properties that it has potentially to travel. Like you're saying, these 22 miles to get to this this fishing vessel, this kind of delayed death. This idea of sort of contamin contamination um, of destruction of genes of uh, defiling sort of heredity down through the generations. I mean, these are, these are really scary concepts, you know, was that certainly, and that certainly motivated a, a lot of people's radiophobia. I'm thinking people more like maybe Linus Pauling or Bertrand Russell, like was, was Mueller motivated, do you feel by, um, the shock and awe of, of, of the hydrogen bomb, for instance, or was this something that predated it or that was, was deeper? Oh, no, Mueller or Mueller, Herman Muller was was had been studying this and had been pushing this proportionality rule. Right now, by this time, for twenty five years, but for the most part, he was in a well. He was a, a very small minority of him and a few others. There were, you know, of course, the, with the Manhattan Project, there was an enormous effort by by some very capable people to understand the effects of radiation well enough to protect the people involved. There was the Manhattan project involved over half a million people. Wow. And many of them were working very closely with radioactive materials, but they had procedures and protocols in place and essentially nobody was harmed during the Manhattan project. At the very end, there was one scientist. Um, I can't remember his name and Doglin who, who made a mistake when he was doing a critical experiment and got irradiated. And then there was one more slotty who was tickling the dragon as a demonstration and didn't follow procedure correctly and, and caused a criticality event that killed him. Didn't harm, didn't kill the other people in the room because his body shielded them. Yeah. Yeah. But other than those two, there was no injuries and, That's incredible. and no long-term negative health effects that were that were uh, as a result of the manhattan project so you know we had been studying radiation and using radioactive materials by the mid 50s for over half a century and there were good protocols in place medical uses uh understood and there was a 
the International Commission on Radiation Protection had been formed in the 30s, had established a rule in the 19, about 1934 that uh, uh, was based on what was called a, a uh, tolerance dose. And so all that was in place. And, and, you know, people generally understood that radiation could have negative effects, but if you kept the doses below certain levels, everybody would be fine. And that was the well-accepted, internationally accepted rules about radiation exposure. Mueller was pushing this idea that it was dangerous all the way down to the very lowest levels and hadn't gotten much traction. After the hydrogen bomb got people's attention, because now there was an example of somebody actually being harmed, people were paying attention and were thinking about radiation. And that is what the, the Rockefeller Foundation points to when they say, why did you set up this study of radiation, of biological effects of atomic radiation at the time you did it, even after the government was spending all this money, they were, there was you know, major research projects underway after the war. Uh, the Russells were doing their million mouse study. There was all kinds of things going on. But people's attention was focused on fallout. And that was what caused the Rockefeller Foundation to say, or this is what they, they will say in their, in their annual reports, that attention is why they said we need an independent ah, okay. study, independent from the government, which, of course, the government can't be trusted to do this properly because they're out there testing yes. atomic bombs in the atmosphere. They have a motivation for, you know, for, for downplaying yeah. the risks. We want to do an independent study, get the best minds available. We'll pick the people in the study. We'll pick the the 12 scientists that will put on the genetics committee. And, oh, by the way, we'll supply the chairman for the committee from our direct our director of biological research, who's been giving grants to geneticists for the last 20 years, will be the chairman of the committee of 12 geneticists. And they will come up with an independent view of what the genetic effect of atomic radiation is. That's that's absolutely fascinating because I was reading through some of this history and you know the Atomic Energy Commission, which was, I guess, given the power to uh, make decisions to stockpile uh, the amount of uranium that existed. To you know, they were running both the weapons and the energy side of things. Um, they really lost the the public's confidence in a whole number of of different measures, and you know, interestingly. You're reading about Edward Teller, I guess the father of the hydrogen bomb, um, and his kind of take on on fallout. Um, I mean, this is a man who, I guess, his intentions were: if you could create such a destructive weapon, you could guarantee world peace. That's that's certainly one way of looking at things. But I think he's seen by a lot of people as as a bit of a as a bit of a monster in terms of chasing greater and greater destructive potential and the sort of, you know, is that a, is that an element of kind of psychopathy or something like that? And, you know, in, in terms of his dismissal of the, the harms from fallout, um, you know, with the medical knowledge that I have, um, I find myself saying, yeah, no, Edward, Edward Tyler was right about fallout. Like it's, it really isn't a big deal, you know, in terms of particularly as a doctor, when I look at the amount of artificial radiation that human beings are exposed to, um, 
you know, 15% of our background dose is artificial and 14% of that I'm given to people as a doctor, right? <laughs> the vast majority <laughs> of artificial radiation comes from, from medicine. Um, but of course, to say that it's not a big deal sounds like you're appeasing the arms industry and that you're kind of in the back pocket of, of the nuclear weapons industry. It's a very, it's a very hard place. You know, I think it's the scientific truth, but um, from a sort of propaganda or public relations lens, it's a, it's a very hard place to occupy to, to minimize the, the impacts of fallout, which again, I think are, are medically insignificant, but, um, you know, they're just associated with, with this, this ultimate destructive potential that, that is the H bomb. It's, it's, it's tricky ground to navigate. So I, I can definitely see that impulse for, well, we can't trust the government. We can't trust the atomic energy commission. We need something independent, but you know, quote unquote independent is largely being bankrolled by, um, you know, one of the largest fossil fuel conglomerates the world's ever known is, is that's basically what you're, what you're positing here. Yeah. And it wasn't largely bankrolled. It was 100% bankrolled. Really? The, the Na National Academy of Sciences study uh, conducted uh, and which produced the biological effects of atomic radiation report was 100% funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. Over wow. $250,000 to produce the report. And when the report was published, was issued by the National Academy of Sciences on June 12, 1956, it was released with a very well-planned um, press conference. And on the day after that report was released, June 12th, 19, I mean, June 13th, 1956, the front page of the New York Times in the upper right-hand column, the whole column on the, 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 above the fold had headlines, scientists declare radiation apparel to man. To the future of man, sorry. Scientists declare radiation apparel to the future of man. And this was the this was the future. This is the future of of not just you know you and me here in the here and now. You know, at the face of uh, dying in atomic weapons, this is our children and our children's children mutated, and and you know that that's the threat they're talking about when they say humanity, right? Exactly. Yeah, the human and race, the species, the human race, man, man, people, mm -hmm. mankind. It didn't say mankind; it said man because. Of course, headlines being what they are, they're limited to characters, but they said, man, the future of man. And you know, now this, on this front page, that, that there were six other articles in the paper on that day in the New York Times, and including one article that was a complete copy of the Genetics Committee report. Mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm. how many scientific reports get published <laughs> in full in the New York Times the day after they're released? Yeah, I, I can't think of a of a precedent for that. You know, I thought that just I thought that's just crossing my mind because I'm just you know I'm, I'm always conscious of the things that I said and I just said that Fallout's no big deal and of course it was for the lucky dragon, right? But well, the, fall, Fallout you, is a big deal for the hydrogen bomb, yeah, because it 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 mobilizes so much Earth yeah. that's contaminated and yeah. it gets direct exposure from the neutron blast and gets some of that those materials get uh, made radioactive by the neutron blast. So it is a big deal. For sure. You know, for if sure. you can get a fatal dose of material dozens of miles away, that's a big deal. Yeah, 
I guess I'm I'm speaking I'm speaking on a population level, particularly years later, right? Um, yeah. And those those unlucky, <laughs> lucky dragon uh, uh, the folks on that boat were were unlucky. I mean, it's shocking they were far away and they were still so harmed. But in terms of the kind of dilution of that pollution across the atmosphere, uh, from a health perspective, insignificant to the rest of the world. But um, and but, but that that's the key thing. This is this. I just want to finish this thought because this is this this key thing is that. You know, with so many other toxins, um, because the human body is capable of sensing them, you know, you can get a general sense of of the the dose of say, if you're in a you know in a in a, in a house and it's catching on fire or whatever, you can kind of get a sense that oh, there's a fire in the fireplace, no big deal. Oh, you know, there's a fire in the kitchen and the curtains are on fire. Like your body gives you some feedback on the level of threat and on the level of dose, the amount of particulate in your environment, et cetera, right? With radiation, you have no way to sense it until your skin starts turning a bit red, right? I just feel like that radiation lends itself to this problem. And, and that's the whole issue with the linear no threshold is that we're making no refinements in terms of the danger based on dose. And even, you know, the famous example of the radium dial painters, I mean, there are many radium dial painters who didn't lick their brushes or didn't lick them very often and never got sick. And we just have this real inability to distinguish um, a, a dose that causes harm from a dose that doesn't. That's the fundamental crux of this problem or whether or not that exists, that threshold exists. That's what we're arguing about. And I just, I just think it's really interesting um, because radiation, you, you just can't sense it, that I think it lends itself to that, that, that problem of not being able to kind of ascertain its danger. That's true. Uh, but as you noted, there are si danger signs associated with radiation. And in fact, that tolerance dose that I mentioned was based on what happens when you physically approach the point where radiation causes harm. The first thing that happens is a reddening of the skin, mm -hmm. skin arrhythmia. And that tolerance dose was set to be one-tenth of the dose that has is the lowest dose that causes arrhythmia in any individual. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so the the scientists, you know, that was that's called the the uh there's two there's stochastic and anyway, there's that's that's the dose that's predictable. Yeah. What Muller's thought was, was that there were these invisible uh, changes that nobody could detect and that we had to protect people against all radiation, even down to these invisible levels where there's no detectable damage. But he claimed that geneticists could detect it, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. there was genetic damage that was being caused. And, and initially, the report from the Genetics Committee in 1956 was solely focused on genetic damage. But just within a year or so, people were translating that notion of causing genetic mutation and saying, well, it's maybe not just a risk to future generations because isn't cancer caused by genetic mutation? Doesn't this uh, disruption of, of the human uh, genome or genetic material, because they didn't quite know about DNA at that time, mm. um, they were learning about DNA just about the same time, but they said if it's disrupting genetics and causing potentially hereditary effects, maybe it's disrupting genetics enough to cause cancers that are initiated by exposure radiation and then develop sometime in the, the 20, 30, 40 years later. Um, and that, so it's not just a risk to generate to future generations, 
it is a risk to people right now. And the notion that this radioactive fallout could be causing genetic damage was promoted carefully by many people who initially were were aimed and not just you know ignorant people scientists were working real hard to promote this idea that radiation caused genetic damage because it gave them a way to get people scared about atmospheric weapons testing yeah and to mobilize an effort to stop the testing of atomic weapons in the atmosphere which in the 1950s was a pretty big industry as you noted uh, between the U.S. and Russia in the 1950s, we exploded well over 200 weapons wow. in the atmosphere. Wow. Most of them didn't cause any fallout to anybody because they were either exploded high in the atmosphere, above where there was any material that could be uh, activated, or they were done um, in, in safer places where they just they, there wasn't a lot of activation but there was some fallout being produced particularly once we started blowing up h-bombs at 10 megatons versus 20 kilotons right and there was a lot of mobilization there and you know in the 50s and the mid 50s there was an effort to go bigger and bigger and bigger with people like teller and oh by the way i won't well to make this discussion a little less complicated i won't introduce too much about lewis strauss straws mm -hmm. who was a member of the original atomic energy commission served a five-year term and then came back to the atomic energy commission uh with eisenhower and served as a chairman until 1958. lewis straws plays a huge role in the development of the hydrogen bomb and in the testing programs in the 1950s and in he was also involved with the rockefeller foundation in getting them to do this independent study and in the period between his initial service on the atomic energy commission and his comeback as chairman of the atomic energy commission lewis straws who who famously went by admiral he was a reserve admiral or reserve naval officer a lieutenant commander at the beginning of World War II, did a bunch of administrative stuff, ended up at the very end of the war being promoted to admiral from captain and then was demobilized. But then he went as admiral for the rest of his time in, in government <laughs> service, kind of helping people forget that his real career was as an investment banker, working for very large companies, investing in very large enterprises like Westinghouse and electric companies and utilities and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And when he wasn't on the Atomic Energy Commission in the 50s, he was a financial advisor to the Rockefeller family. Mm -hmm. So interesting. In my view, uh, you know, there was an effort to really scare people about atomic energy. And, you know, there was no confusion early on because people were told that atomic energy was atomic weapons. Yeah. And the Atomic Energy Commission in the US was formed in 19 at the end of 1946 and did not spend i mean it spent minuscule like single digit percentages of its total appropriation on anything to do with commercializing atomic power it right. spent everything on building 
a a factory complex to build weapons and testing those weapons. That's and, what the Atomic Energy Commission did for mm-hmm. its first eight years. And when, when you think about when you think about like the precautionary principle and and how how it's so misused these days to suppress. Um, a lot of uh, potentially beneficial technologies. If you're thinking about atomic energy only from the perspective of weapons, then the application of the precautionary principle, um, you know, as a tool to try and persuade governments to to stop the madness of pursuing ever larger and more destructive weapons um, and the potential of kind of uh, atomic pollution. Like I, I can see myself in that environment sort of lining up alongside those folks. Like it, it it's, it's compelling. It makes sense. Like these madmen are threatening the uh, the very world that we live in um but you know the 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 doctor in me the 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 science lover in me especially in the context of of uh nuclear energy and its its role in climate change and in in replacing fossil fuels is obviously shifts that that dynamic for me quite a bit it's just it's a very interesting place to sort of historically time travel back to (laughs) yes it is and you know most of us most of the world thinks it's a great thing that there is a new energy source that is capable of replacing fossil fuels and carries with it far fewer of the pollution and global climate change consequences of using fossil fuels. I mean, that's a great boon to mankind to have a replacement that's available. And I mean, but if you're climate- of selling fossil fuels, that's a scary concept. Yeah. No, I, I remember the story that you've told me before about, I think your father was involved in the power generation uh, industry and, and kind of your introduction to atomic energy was just, I think, him taking you to a, uh, a power plant and there was no smokestacks. I mean, just the, the pre sort of climate change benefits of nuclear energy are very, are very real and very much there. And I think that's kind of what fascinated you as a kid. Isn't that right? Oh, absolutely. Air pollution was a big deal. And I, I'm a, I'm a, I don't suffer from asthma, but I'm very sensitive to smoke and pollution and pollen and that kind of stuff. I have a lot of allergies. And it was a big deal for me to think about not having pollution coming from power plants. As you said, my dad was a power plant or a power company guy. I I always thought the power company was the good guys because I really loved what electricity could do. And of course, they also gave me nice presents at Christmas time. So you know, the power company was a welcome part of my life. They gave dad a good salary and, you know, helped to make our life better. But electricity was a big, important thing. And I mean, dad was a, was a beneficiary of the New Deal. He grew up on a on a isolated, non-powered farm in in southern Georgia, where, you know, everything was done by hand. And, you, you know, you you carried firewood and and made candles and all that stuff. Uh, but then the, the, the rural electrification, uh, the REA, Rural Electrification Administration, came in and, and helped electrify his, his hometown. Then he moved to, to the big city of Jacksonville and really got to love electricity. So that's why he studied electricity wow, in wow. college. I th- he I thought th- it was great stuff. And dad was a very service-minded guy. Mm-hmm. The other part I, I remember about growing up was him getting uh, every once a month, he would get dressed in casual clothes because usually he went to work in a coat and tie, but he just got dressed in casual clothes, work boots and a hard hat and went for storm training because for the power company, especially in Florida, a storm is all hands on deck 
restoring right. electricity. Right. So, yeah. Knocked down your power lines and stuff. Yep. Rod, I wanted to again circle back because um, you know the, the kind of theme of the interview is this idea of this you know fossil fuel. Uh, fossil fuel fueled foundation uh, mobilizing science to to uh, play into the the radiation scare. Um, to, know, to create the radiation scare. Create it, yeah. Remember, yeah. Remember before before the BEAR, there were X ray machines in shoe stores. Yeah, yeah. People were getting treated for adenoids with with radiation. There was all kinds of of the use the, of the radiation. Funny, yeah. The funniest one I saw there was uh, like parents would get their newborns X-ray just as a kind of momentum, a memento they could put in their house, like a family photo or something. Oh, just, yeah, that, uh, that was very common. Very People different attitude, but, but nonetheless, you know, so we're talking about that theme in the context of a disruptive technology, and I think something that really strikes me when I when I look at um, the media in the context of you know discussions of an energy transition now in the light of of climate change. Is that um, you know a another series of technologies, uh, wind and solar power, um, really face almost zero scrutiny in the media? And you know, I think if they were technologies that struck fear into the heart of fossil fuel in, uh, magnates of you know a disruptive technology, the kind of Uber of electricity that might get the old fossil fuel taxi business out of out of business, there there would be a real market change in how they were approached in the media. I mean, you mentioned the the beer report getting eating up most of the front page of the New York Times, for instance. I just, I'm just struck by that. Um, and I wonder if, if, if you share that outlook as well, just that idea that, you know, just the kind of soft touch that renewables get in the media um, as a, you know, while being simultaneously marketed as this tool that's going to replace fossil fuels or, or going to be disruptive in some way. Well, don't forget that advertiser-supported media or commercial media, whatever you want to call it, doesn't work for the viewers and the readers because we don't pay for it. The advertiser-supported media works for the people that pay their checks. Yeah. The advertisers. Okay, I'm sorry. To, I mean, people have that you know misconception, but all businesses work for their revenue sources, not for the for the the product that they're marketing. And what media markets is their ability to reach eyeballs. So yes, when there is a major industry and a major advertiser that whose business is threatened, the media may pay attention to that or may pay more attention to that. And particularly if the business is a very skilled propagandist business, PR business, sorry, that, um, that understands how to use communication to make their products seem glorious and other people's products seem, you know, instill doubt and fears and uncertainty about a competitive product and fear, uncertainty and doubt. FUD is a big tool of, of advertising and, and that, and, you know, if you look back at the history of the, of the commercial renewables industry, the wind development of wind and solar as, commercial power sources, even though we've known about these energy sources for millennia, um, development of them as commercial power sources took place around the same time that nuclear was growing fast. It started off in the, in the late 1940s, early 1950s. And if you look back real hard in the history, you'll find an awful lot of fingerprints, oily fingerprints from the 
petroleum companies and, and other hydrocarbon interests promoting the idea that solar would be the future. And by the way, one of the most uh, active proponents of developing atomic energy for commercial power as an alternative for fossil fuels, immediately, um, as, as soon as he learned about it, and immediately after World War II, uh, Farrington Daniels led a project, the only peaceful atomic power project, and the Manhattan Project under the Army was pretty keen on developing this commercial power plant and devoted quite a bit of resources, attracted a lot of interest from industry, the Monsanto Company, Westinghouse, a few others, um, and they were working hard to develop this. It got canceled immediately when the Atomic Energy Commission came into play. But Farrington Daniels worked diligently and tried hard. He got articles published in the papers. He made speeches to the American Chemical Society. All that. He tried hard to keep getting people interested in, let's use this peaceful power. We've got the ability to build reactors. We know how to do that. We've done it for production of materials. We can do it for production of heat. We really know how to do this. 1954, Farrington Daniel was also interested in using the sun as a source of power. He called it the poor man's nuclear reactor. Um, Farrington Daniels applied for a small grant from the Rockefeller Foundation to have a conference about solar energy. He said, oh, you're interested in solar energy? Here's $250,000. Go study it hard. Hmm. By the way, so Farrington Daniels, one of the biggest proponents of atomic energy, became a major proponent of solar energy uh, with the help of a big, generous grant from the Rockefeller Foundation. I think he, they were distracting him, but that's just me. I'm a, I'm a nut. I believe that, that businesses, particularly big, enormous, well-capitalized global businesses, look hard around to see what threatens their markets, see what, what kinds of things will limit their growth in the future. And there's no doubt that nuclear energy limits the growth of fossil fuels and, in fact, seriously threatens their shrinkage. It won't replace them completely, mm -hmm. but it definitely impacts their markets. And part of the profitability of fossil fuels is get this nagging perception that we have that maybe the fuels are going to be running out and then we're going to be having to pay more and more for them. And that if there is a well-recognized alternative that's being developed and shows that we're not going to ever run out, that we don't have to pay $150 a barrel for oil or even $50 a barrel for oil, the profitability of fossil fuels goes way, way down. You know, it, it doesn't take much it, it, markets to do yeah. that. Yeah, it's it's funny because I think some people would would sort of raise an eyebrow at you and say that sounds conspiratorial. Um, but it, you know, in terms of making that into a very kind of real world example, um, I've been involved with efforts to try and save uh, one of Ontario's three uh, nuclear power plants. And I mean, these are big stations. This is a three point two gigawatt station, and um, and it's been interesting as as kind of one of the leaders of this campaign. I've really noticed I've been getting a lot of attention on my LinkedIn profile from Enbridge Gas. 
a natural gas company who stands to sell, I think it's 5 million cubic meters of natural gas per year are going to be burned um, to replace that three gigawatts of output from Pickering. And so there's a very real game going on here, right? Where, you know, okay, one of the advocates of trying to save the station, even though it's this uphill, probably impossible battle, um, I'm, I'm, I felt kind of proud that I was being trolled by the fossil fuel industry there. I was like, I, I guess I can tell that I'm on the right side of history here <laughs> based upon who's creeping my profile, why people are interested in me now. So there, there is a very, and I, and I think you see that across the states as well with, uh, you know, closures, uh, premature or so-called economic closures of, of nuclear power plants. There is big winners um, when a nuclear station shuts down. Absolutely. And, you know, it's, it's not I get upset when people throw out the word conspiracy theory when you know I I'm a trained manager and a and a strategist I have a, a, a diploma from the Navy War College and and you know worked hard to learn how to be a planner and how to strategize and 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 build organizations that 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 can look around and, and have good situational awareness and find out what's going to impact their hmm. ability to to dominate, to prosper, whatever you want to do. I mean, there are huge training programs for these. This is what MBA programs do to people. They train you how to do this. And being a planner and an organizer and a builder of coalitions is part of being a businessman. That's not being a conspiracy. That's doing what you're supposed to do. What you're paid real big bucks to do in some places is to plan and protect markets and and create barriers to entry and and you know understand where your competition may be and seeing if you can figure out how to derail your competition, spread some doubt about your competition. You know, some people will, of course, in some cases, you also learn how to be a very productive way and make your own products better. But in cases where you're fundamentally disadvantaged, where you're a real lightweight in a heavyweight battle, the only option you have is to handicap the heavyweight guy. You know, I've, I've of course, the order of magnitudes is not even really close because it's, it's much better than this. But I like to think of nuclear as having the ability to draft Shaquille O'Neal to play kindergarten basketball. Yeah. I mean, literally, that's the, the kind of advantage that nuclear has no pollution you can power a submarine a big submarine for 14 years on a mass of fuel about the same as my own body weight and that was with 1962 technology yeah you know we we have this incredible inexhaustible emission free power source and yes you know i i got i've gotten involved with some people recently on a discussion and said they said well we just we hate it when you bring up this politics and 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 conspiracy theory stuff. And I said, but it's the only way to answer the question. If nuclear is as good as you say it is, and I'm 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 not lying when I say how good it is. If it's as good as I say it is, how else can you explain the fact that it doesn't dominate the world's energy market? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It has to be some some at least community of interest coalitions of the willing <laughs> effort to try to find ways to disadvantage it to um you know i, I can come up with all kinds of examples and, and on atomic insights i document 
many of these stories uh, in a series I call or a category I call the smoking gun category on Atomic Insights. Yeah. But you you mentioned Enbridge in a as a particular company that will benefit by closure of a rather large local power source. But think about the the trading companies in Japan that over the last 10 years hmm. have traded about, about $50 billion worth of fossil fuels extra to supply what would have been produced by running nuclear power plants. Those plants exist today. They could have been running right after the earthquake and tsunami knocked out one of them. But because of the ability to make people afraid of nuclear, the whole fleet shut down and created this enormous new market for natural gas, LNG, and coal. And also, not just in Japan, but they made more money because that extra demand in Japan tightened the market and and raised prices for LNG throughout the the Asian Pacific marketplace. Wow. <laughs> Just think about the amount of money there. $50 billion a year, roughly, over a 10-year period. Yeah, so there's there's some uh <laughs> there's some corporate interest in continuing to freak people out in Japan about radiation and have them build 20 coal plants instead of just firing up those shuttered nuclear plants. Wow. Yes. Okay. I mean, and and the within if you read the trade press and the oil and gas industry over history you'll find where they will report in various locations the effects on natural gas demand and prices from temporary nuclear plant shutdowns wow and and it's not hard for somebody who's a businessman to say well, if every time a nuclear plant shuts down, there's an increase in gas prices and increase in demand, maybe I should do what I can to get those plants to shut down permanently. Yeah, yeah. Maybe I should do what I can to at least stretch their shutdowns as long as I can. Maybe we'll, we'll get the, the some of these NGOs, we'll give them a little bit of money and let them go and, and ask more questions and, and call, create more hearings and, and raise more concerns. We'll do all that. And we'll just, you know, it's kind of good for business. We'll just keep people being nervous about nuclear. That's that's been going on now, you know, for 60 years. But again, we, we talked about the the creation of nuclear fear and the creation of some of these wild uh, fiction stories about, uh, you know, mutated beasts coming out of the ocean and all that stuff. That can all be traced back to this idea that, the very lowest doses of radiation cause genetic mutation that can't be detected. And that whole effort was a very long-term plan and sponsored effort. I mean, Herman Muller, for many reasons, was an unpopular guy in his profession, at least among the people that hired, made hiring decisions. Mm-hmm. He had trouble getting a job several times in his career. And several times he got a job because the Rockefeller Foundation stepped in and offered to 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 provide a big grant to the university if they would hire Herman Muller. Wow. He got travel payments so he could go and promote his ideas. 
that the lowest dose of radiation cause genetic mutations. You know, there is some indication that there was some effort to encourage the nominators for the Nobel Prize to make sure that Herman Muller got an award for his genetic studies right after the atomic bombings um, so that they, he, it could get some more credibility mm-hmm. as a scientist. He said, you know, Nobel award-winning scientists are pretty big deals. Yeah. And then, you know, he ended up going to a backwater in University of Indiana. Again, he couldn't get a job right after World War II. The only reason he had a job or the job he had during the war was teaching undergraduate uh, genetics, undergraduate biology at Amherst College in Massachusetts. And at the end of the war, the president of Amherst College told Mueller that his contract was not going to be renewed because the students really didn't really like him as an undergraduate teacher. And they had people coming back from the war who they wanted to rehire. So his his position was going to be filled and he needed to go to get another job. Right, and right. That's a pretty scary thing to tell a 56-year-old man who has a brand new baby. Yeah. He, 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 had, a, he had, met, had a second wife and married again and, and had a new baby at the end of the war. So yeah, he, he was... A, a long history of, of uh, getting help along the way from the, the Rockefeller Foundation. Yeah. Ron, Ron, this has been uh, absolutely, absolutely fascinating. And, uh, you know, really... These last few minutes uh, have been really eye-opening for me. Like as I said, I was I was starting to see some of this um, just pragmatically from the perspective of Enbridge Enbridge Gas, kind of showing a lot of interest in my LinkedIn profile as I was advocating for this nuclear plant. But you know what you had to say about Japan and the, the impacts there. I mean, it's just it's it's real politique. It's just kind of that's the way the business world works. There's an intense rationale for the argument that you're making. So thank you so much for, for coming on decouple and, and, and sharing that uh, outlook with us. Anytime, Chris, um, I, I hope that I haven't scared away too many of your, your listeners and said, boy, this, this guy invites on some nuts, but <laughs> hey, the, the, the business world is, um, is what it is. You yeah. know? And, and I, I like the free enterprise system. I don't like, when people with real deep pockets can put their thumbs on the scales of justice or or science and mold it for their own benefit yeah yeah well i guess that was that was the whole problem with john d rockefeller and why his monopoly was eventually broken up right that's what ida tarbell wrote about yeah well there's a lot of modern monopolies that can certainly use a smashing right now but that's that's uh, a <laughs> great <for another problem. laughs> That, that is a topic for another, but please, I, if I can, if I can make any message to people, don't think of it as conspiracy theory and something to be dismissed. Understand that the world does follow some amounts of logic. And that when things are really confusing to you, you may need to dig a little bit deeper to find out why. Mm-hmm. And again, if, if you know how good, the fission chain reaction is as an energy source, as a new fire, you got to wonder why isn't it more dominant? Why haven't we done a better job developing it? And oh, by the way, I will mention that I'm working real hard to try to encourage people to develop more. I've got a new gig as a member of a, of a venture capital firm, 
nucleation capital is directly interested in um, helping advanced fission to closer achieve its potential. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's important. And so maybe I have my own capitalist interests. <laughs> I'm, I'm a guy who spends most of his time in his pajamas and writing right. about things. So I love uh, it. I love it. Right. No, I, I do think that we're in a very bizarre situation and moment in human history where we may let our, our fear of ultra low dose radiation lead us to really cook the planet. You know, if, if you are someone who, who deeply is concerned about climate change and its impacts, and you can actually run some calculations and look at even with linear no threshold assumptions, the kind of relative risks and harms that, that exist as a result of out of control climate change, these, these out of proportion fears really do run the risk of not letting us, I guess, pursue the kind of technologies that could deliver us from climate change. And that's, that's very interesting. And it's, it's worth investigating how we got to this state of, uh, of radiophobia that we currently find ourselves in. So again, Rod, thanks for, thanks for coming on to help shed some light on that. All right. Take care, Chris. All right. Bye for now. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys. 